Hello, and welcome to Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. In this podcast, we bring you insights and perspectives from government leaders and executives around the Beltway and beyond. Hello, and welcome to Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. I'm your host, Doug Russell, Director of Programs for Washington Zec. Today, I'm joined by Mark Marlin, Co-Founder and Managing Director of Kips DeSando and Company, a premier investment banking firm in Washington, D.C. He has spent the last 12 years providing M&A, financing, and growth advisory services to clients ranging from privately held entrepreneurial-owned businesses to Fortune 100 corporations. Prior to Kip Sasanto, he spent time at various leading financial institutions, namely Julian Loki, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Harris Williams. So thank you very much, Mark, for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. At a high level, can you briefly tell us a little more about your role in firm, please? Yeah, of course. So Kip Sasanto is the largest investment bank exclusively focused on the aerospace, defense, and technology solution sector. Um, our focus is really providing dedicated and sound and really unbiased advice um, to owners and industry partners and investors in the government contracting and defense space. And our, our end game is really exceptional transaction results, right? That is what we do. We're M&A focused but um, very consultative in nature of all of the ecosystem in the industry that, that we touch, both buyers and sellers and, of course, our industry partners. Very good. So how, how did you fall into this field of investment banking? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long um, journey that I like to say, you know, started in, in Ohio where I was raised and had a few stops in Southeast Asia and landed myself back here in Washington, D.C., um, given some time I spent with the World Bank. But at, at the end of the day, when you think about you know, what we do, there's two critical elements to it. Um, one is working with people, and the second is solving problems, right, with a prescribed outcome. You know, my role in the organization as, um, as a manning dire- managing director and co-lead of our technology solutions group is to really advise on transactions. The predominance of our business is sell-side mergers and acquisitions. But there's a lot that goes into that from understanding the market, identifying uh, potential clients, um, helping advise and create a strategy of how to put their best foot forward in in a marketing process to harvest max value for them through an M&A transaction. But also having a deep understanding of the, the market environment from a optimization of the timing and also having those deep relationships within the buyer investment community in order to, to know when the right time is and how to put that client's best foot forward. So when you think about you know, what we're doing, we're putting together this mosaic of all these constituents to help drive an outcome. And that outcome feeds into to twofold, right? Back to those people and back into the problem solving. When you think about the problem solving, as we know, you know, companies are living, breathing entities. It's not something like a house that has defined four walls and has a defined address, but there's contracts going in and out. There's people that are going in and out, um, and there's market environment that's changing around them. When you think about the people component, um, you know, our business is has a healthy mix of what we call entrepreneur 
work as well as institutions, right? Entrepreneur working for kind of the, the founder owner as well as institution, which is more private equity or corporate investors. On the entrepreneurial side of the world, for many of our clients, they've never done something like this before, right? This is their first foray into the M&A game. Um, they've never really had an outside perspective of somebody coming in and looking at their their business, not from the owner-operator view, but from a value creation view, and helping you know guide them through that um, and all the, the zigs and zags is, is problem solving, right? There's challenges of, of how to work through that. It's also typically the most important and kind of generational life-changing transaction or business transaction that these folks will ever go through. And that's something that's extremely personal. It's something that we, um, we love about um, the opportunity of working with these entrepreneurs, having you know, now been an entrepreneur, helping you know, start Kips DeSanto, and then um, working with, with those folks. Um, my, earlier in my career, I was on the lending and investing side for the World Bank. And that was, again, where I had the opportunity to travel the world and put on a hard hat and make decisions of whether we were going to actually invest our capital in businesses. And that you know, means walking through a factory and talking with employees and thinking about you know, how to help companies grow. Uh, that intimacy is something that I personally was very, very attracted to, right? Building relationships with people. Um, you know, when I did my stint during business school at J.P. Morgan, I had the privilege of working with, you know, Fortune 500 companies of, of extreme kind of sophistication. Um, for me, it was really exciting to go into the mar- mid-market with these entrepreneurial owners um, that really kind of need our thought leadership and have not done this before, and we can hold their hands in a consultative manner. Um, what's nice about what we do in our business also, like I said, about half of our business is more institutional. We also get to scratch that itch of working with, you know, some of the, the leading public companies and obviously um, super successful private equity firms uh, in the space. Very good. Well, thanks for that, Mark. A uh, couple of things that are hidden on there is uh, it's a very complex transaction and highly emotional, uh, I think, for maybe an individual small business owner, um, which I think could be hard. How do you manage that? Uh, complexity, uh, you know, as being a managing director, what is kind of maybe some of these sort of mis- things that people wouldn't realize is a challenge for you as an investment firm uh, for the small business owner? Yeah, it's funny. I like to say that my time is equally split between psychologist, strategist, and practitioner, right? Because it is such an emotional um, perspective. The good thing is, uh, as long as you know we've done this as a firm. Uh, collectively, um, we've we've seen many of the challenges and ups and downs that happen, and it's our job to maintain that even keel throughout a process. Again, to help them through that roller coaster of the twists and turns. Uh, I'll share a funny anecdote. Had a client a number of years ago during this emotional roller coaster, and she would call nearly every day and said, should I be worried? Should I be worried? Should I be panicked? And we'd say, nope, you know, everything's working as planned. Everything's moving to script. My panic button, you know, is in my drawer, right? That was the comment that I would tell her every day. And we, we closed the transaction um, successfully. And I called her back two days later and I said, hey, you know, I've been lying to you. And she said, what? 
I said, we've been working together for five months and I've been lying to you. She said, well, wh what do you mean? I said, I don't have a panic button. I said, I've been telling you that there's a panic button in my drawer and I, I don't have one because as your advisors, if, if we panic, right, you're in trouble because right. it's our job to maintain, you know, that even keel and keep the, the process going. Um, so it, it is a balance, but again, I think um, our kind of consultative in nature, um, we, we look for ways to add that stability and that comfort amongst an otherwise tumultuous, you know, kind of process. Right. And one of the other things, well, I can appreciate that. So difficult balance in, in managing that. One of the other things, too, that you mentioned, too, is the timing. I think part of it is the timing uh, in someone's business career or small business ownership. Can you talk about how to get the timing right or what, if you're a small business out there considering selling or looking to sell or trying to figure that out, do you have any kind of insight on what is a good time to do that, right? It, or emotionally, how do they feel? Can you, any comments on that? Yeah, so there's kind of multiple things that we look at in helping a company decide how to optimize timing. And there's not a hard and fast rule as each situation is very unique to that. But I will share with you the data points that we look at and we think about to make that assessment. The first is um, the shareholder objectives, right? What are you know their goals? What are their aspirations? Where are they at in their career? You know, do they think they have kind of more to offer, or, or oftentimes have they taken it um, as far as they think they have in terms of their capability? Right? You might have an owner that says, "Hey, I've, I've never run a hundred million dollar business before, so wow, how do I get this to two fifty? With private equity. Um, it could be very different saying, hey, listen, you know, we've had a great run with this business. We're towards the end of our whole period and we have an obligation to our limited partners to monetize where it might be a corporate that says, hey, this is no longer a core um, line of business and, right. and we want to exit that. So the shareholder objectives is step one. The second component to think about is the kind of um, the public markets and the kind of macroeconomic environment. Right? Are interest rates favorable? Is there a lot of capital? You know, the, the broader market segment in terms of the economic cycle. The third is the trends of this sector specifically, right? So is government contracting, you know, in vogue? Is it, you know, is it out of favor? Uh, where are we in an election cycle? Yes. Um, right. So that's the fourth component. And the last one is business and company performance. Right. And from our perspective, um, and you'll hear differing views on, you know, are you better off timing the company or are you better off kind of timing the market? Right. If you think about those, those four elements that I just talked about, the only two that a seller really controls is the shareholder objectives and the company performance. Um, I think philosophically, we believe that a, a strong market helps, but at the end of the day, right, it gotta be the right time for the company, right? Meaning, is it on the right vehicles? Has it been through a recompete cycle? Does it have a site picture, uh, you know, and a clear site picture on continued growth? Um, is there the infrastructure and the processes and the procedures and the discipline where somebody else, albeit a, a corporate buyer or a financial sponsor, believes that there is an opportunity for them in some which way or another to supercharge 
that growth and or you know supercharge their own growth with what they're doing. So, so that's the framework that we like to take people through to help them think through because it's very it's very company and opportunity specific. Yeah, that makes sense. So when someone approaches you and thinks they're at that point of wanting to sell, what sort of misconceptions do you see are the most common about the sell side, that's one side, and then maybe the buy side? And what are those two misconceptions that you have for both of those parties when they're ready to have a deal? So can you maybe comment on that and from maybe the sell side, what someone, a, new, a small business owner comes in and says, okay, I think I'm ready to sell and then you walk them through this process, this framework. Can you kind of comment what the misconceptions they have when they come in, please? So um, it's funny. The, um, the first misconception is folks need to appreciate that when you're thinking about selling the business, the view on the business from a value proposition is how the business looks and operates within the construct of the buyer versus through the view of the seller. And we like to say it's like a jigsaw puzzle, right? The more that a seller's business is is that missing piece that fits in and completes a picture of what a buyer is trying to create, right, is is really what what maximizes or can drive value versus saying, hey, this is how it works for me. And this feeds into, you know, some of the small business elements, right? You have a lot of Mm -hmm. companies that say, hey, you know, I've been a super, you know, um, successful small business and... We're doing great on these set-aside contracts or, or an 8A contract or some other designation. You know, those things go away upon a change of control in many cases. And being able to say, hey, look at the capabilities, look at my reach back, look at my contract vehicles. You know, I have this contract vehicle, but, you know, a, a government customer only feels comfortable giving us a $50 million contract. But, hey, if I have company XYZ on our business card that has lots of past performance, across billion dollar programs, well, that really opens up my market, right? That's where that picture gets gets beautiful, right? So thinking about it um, from a, a revenue synergy perspective, right, is where the magic can happen, right? One plus one equals five, six, seven, eight. Um, from um, the buy side, it's important um, to think about two things. The first misconception from, from buyers, and I'll say it from the seller's view of the buyer, is that my biggest competitor is who's going to buy me. That actually rarely happens, right? And you'll hear this mentality of, hey, we're, you know, we're beating company XYZ left and right, so they're going to buy us. Right. Well, think about the dynamics, right? In every buyer, there needs to be a business unit champion that kind of goes and puts their badge on the table and says, I think we should buy this company. Imagine the person that walks into their boss's office and says, hey, we need to buy this company because they're beating us day in and day out, right? Right. That's probably not a good career move, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, again, it's, it's typically the business unit champions and the buyer are folks that are thinking about how to, again, accelerate and enhance their P&L. And they're looking for pieces, again, to their, their puzzle. When we think about buyers and sellers combined, uh, the the one misconception, and listen, we are we are as aggressive as all get out to make sure every you know nickel penny, you know gets um gets put on our clients' side of the ledger, but M and A does not have to be this clear winner and loser, right? Where somebody won and somebody lost, right? Oh, you know. They overpaid, so we won. Or if you're a buyer, hey, we got it on the cheap, so we won. It, it doesn't need to be like that, right? Um, there can be collaboration 
working together towards a common outcome of a win-win. Sometimes it's, it's really the great deal is mutually uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is the buyer feels like they overpaid and the seller feels like they just didn't get enough, right? And um, that often is a win-win, which is exciting. No, I, th I think that's a great insight there in terms of what's the deal. So I think it kind of goes back, we we're talking about how much does the emotion of the deal, you know, factor in what, what it's worth? Because I feel like this is almost tantamount to someone selling their house, their home, and they may have done some custom renovations to it, and they feel like it's worth a certain number of value, but then maybe have a broker in between that's saying, well, it's worth this, this amount of money, uh, and I think because I did these details, a certain value, but it's dictated based on what the market is, what that potential larger buyer has. So do you feel like it's something like that? Sometimes you're almost sort of this broker representing two different sides sometimes and kind of blending the two together in terms of uh, measuring the marketplace? Yeah, so I think we're creating a market, and what we're doing is helping our clients paint the picture of what could be, right? Um, again, we, I think it's much more complex than, than the housing scenario because, again, these are living, breathing companies. Sure. But basically saying, hey, look, look at what can be done with those two. So not a matter of saying, you know, hey, this is the seller's view of look. It, the buyer's view, but us really sitting in the middle and having the benefit of both of those and being able to help them collectively paint that picture. You know, our, our goal is to really try and diffuse the emotion, right? It, it's hard, especially on the entrepreneurial um, seller side. I mean, this is this is a, a child, right? They've, right. they've years, and years and years of investment and blood and sweat and tears and an awesome, awesome obligation to the employees, and also, you know, remember this sector is unique. And um, you know, when I go back to my history, I, I, I've been in banking, you know, the financial industry for for nearly twenty years. I've been in government contracting for for you know, going on um, almost fifteen years. But what's unique about this sector is the dedication of the mission, the mission, right. and right. the patriotism. And there's almost like this this triple bottom line in these deals where there's this obligation to the mission which is so critically important. There's this connection to the, the employees, right? And the families that rely on the business. And then there's obviously the, the owner's objectives and this kind of financial goals and objectives that they wanna do and helping them, you know, kind of balance those out um, through, a, through perspective um, can often diffuse some of the emotion by, by helping them think and appreciate through all of those and also picking the partner that has a belief, a similar belief, right, right in those ideals yeah. and that alignment. And when you get the alignment right, you'll see the a lot of the emotion starts going into, you know, I want to say secondary things, right? The the dotting the I's and the crossing of the T's and mm -hmm. you know, kind of legal terms and conditions and maybe some business issues. But when there's the the joint vision. Um, th the deals get there, and often those are the ones that are just most successful. That's interesting. That's okay. Yeah, I would I would think the alignment would be very key in doing some of these things. Um, um, what is the best war story that you can share in an M and A transaction that you've been a part of? Yeah, so no transaction um, is alike, but it's funny. There's one uh, that really jumps out. And this was a a, a relationship we had had um, for a while. And they had gotten approached by a 
large strategic, and they had actually been engaging with them on a one-off. And um, as everybody knows, those are those are tough transactions. Um, and the uh, the large public company um, they they backed away from the transaction, right? And it was not kind of a auction process. It wasn't a sales process. It was kind of a one-off. And um, the the window was right for them. We've talked a lot about timing. They did not want to run a process. Um, you know, to give some time perspective, there was strong probability that taxes were going to be going up. And this was um, in the September timeframe. So here you are saying taxes are going up 90 days from now. And um, the, the, the deal had gone sideways. Um, we engaged quickly and in, in 90 days, um, again, given the trust that they had in us, given our understanding having sold a number or advised on selling a number of their competitors, and given our deep relationships with the buyer, we quickly identified um, two other publics that were lacking some of the capabilities and lacking the contract vehicle that was the core of this business. And we put together, uh, engaged very quickly, a, a highly um, competitive auction process with these two publics. Um, and you know they were just going back and forth and, and the stakes just kept getting better, right? The terms kept getting better, the price kept getting better. Um, and um, we, we got that deal done from start to finish in less than 90 days before the, um, before the taxes changed. And it was really the whole portfolio of what we bring to bear. It was the analytic rigor that we bring to help, um, to help get them you know, ready for sale and tell the story. It was the understanding of the market about the vehicles and which kind of two guys would be most interesting. It was our knowledge and relationships um, with those buyers to be able to bring them to the table and get them up to speed um, quickly. And then it was the ability to kind of create a process to get it done before the end game. And it was funny the way that that shook out is at the final day where we had told both these parties to, to give us their proposals, the phone's kind of ringing, right? We got one calling on one line and saying, hey, we're here. And the other saying, we're here, here and here. And um, we actually went back to, to one of the buyers and we said, hey, you know, we think that this, this could be yours, but we need you to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and they actually didn't believe that there was another buyer. Right. And they said, nope, like we're done. And we went to the other one and we said, hey, listen, there's, you know, an opportunity for you to um, to to, you know, get this transaction. And it was really fascinating. They said, OK, we're going to increase our price just a little bit. Right. Very, very little minor. Right. So it was you know, less than seven digits. Right. But they also have to be willing to go to lunch with us today. And we'll meet them at this restaurant, right, in two hours. And if they, and we'll give them the money, right, the additional purchase price if they come to lunch. Because this buyer was really focused on how do you win the hearts and minds, right? And this is a, a people business. And it was interesting. So um, at the end of the day, um, you had one buyer that, that I would say lost what could have been a very strategic acquisition over a few hundred thousand dollars and a lunch where another buyer made a very critical strategic acquisition that they were able to get over the lines with you know minimal additional purchase price and a lunch because of kind of the hearts and minds concept. So this was one that is just a great story because it really, it's, it's all the elements of, of what we do and ties in just a lot of the different kind of dynamics of what gets deals done.
Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, great story. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. In terms of technology, I think we're hearing a lot about at Washington Zach. A lot of our speakers coming in across several agencies is AI, ML, deep learning, all these things are happening. How does that impact M&A activity in those transactions? Um, can you allude to that a little further? What maybe what things might go away less valuable, maybe as services change, technology evolves, things that may go away, and then things that might be more increase in value because they have these technology walls. Yeah. So um, the word I would use is differentiation. Yes. To think mm -hmm. about it. Um, it's interesting. A lot of, at least on the professional service side, and I spend a lot of my time on the technology solution side, you know, software or services, we'll talk to companies and we'll say, you know, what's your competitive advantage? And they'll say, well, we have the, the best people. Right. right. <laughs> In reality, that's tough to quantify because um, when you start unpacking that comment, what you'll find is it's not necessarily the best people, but you have companies that are most successful are the ones that put their their people in a position to be successful with differentiators, right? And those differentiators are often rooted in technology, yes. processes, procedures, big data solutions, tools, right? How can we make our folks more efficient, which makes us more cost competitive, right? Um, how does the government add efficiency um, to help, or technology to make them more efficient, or how to contractors introduce technologies to add that efficiencies um, and to some extent, you know, maybe even cannibalize some of the labor hours to drive value, which is good for the taxpayer as well. So, you know, we are in such an exciting, um, uh, such an exciting time of this technology, you know, you know, evolution and, and revolution, right? So to speak, and um, we don't see any slowing down on the importance of technology. There's two elements to think about how folks are, are playing this. Um, number one is. Um, firms that are taking the position of, you know, we're going to develop and become experts in AI, ML, and help this modernization and transformation right. piece of it. And there's, you know, there's no lack of, of, um, of opportunity there. And we think there's going to be more demand. The second is around how do I become an expert in a Salesforce or ServiceNow or some commercial technology that now, you know, Amazon you know, Microsoft, that I can now bring and introduce to solve those problems. And, you know, we're firm believers that there's long legs and a lot of room to run uh, on both of those. Perfect. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I want to pivot just a little bit, have a couple questions in here about more personal related, if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, you mentioned travel earlier on in your career when you're at World Bank. Do you have a favorite vacation spot? Where does Mark Marlin go when he's got time away from investment banking? Yeah, so um, we're big travelers. Um, never really found a place that we don't like. But um, so a lot of folks know um, we've been going to Puerto Rico for a long time, and obviously it was tragic what happened with the hurricane. Um, so they're in a rebuilding process. So um, you know, big proponents of anywhere you know warm, right? Yes. Puerto, uh, Puerto Rico, Aruba, Bermuda, you know, anywhere that that is warm and sunny. Um, is a big uh, is a big family favorite. Perfect. Uh, so one more question: uh, what what is it something that most people don't know about you? Kind of on outside of Mark Marlin Investment Banking. Yeah. So um, the one thing I always go to, which is easy, is I am a lifetime member of the uh, 
Baker's Tobacco and Confectionery Union, Local 19. Um, you know, I grew up in. You can give a shout out. That's okay. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was. Uh, grew up in um, an industrial town in Ohio, and I spent a summer working the graveyard shift at a mass production um, bakery that made bread. Right. And uh, at the, I was a union worker, and at the end of the summer, they said, would you like to pay to get your lifetime um, membership? And I figured if I ever had to go back to it, if the investment banking thing didn't work, then I wouldn't have to pay my union dues again. So that's uh, that's my little-known secret. That's excellent. Well, uh, there you have it. I think that's maybe a good place to wrap up. So Mark Marlin, investment banker, managing director, Kip Santa, thank you for your time today. And he's a baker and a union worker, Local 19. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. Visit our website at www.washingtonexec.com for more content and episodes.